Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 134 of F-Stop Collaborate and Listen. This week's episode features a nature and landscape photographer from Mariposa, California, near Yosemite National Park, Michael Fry. Michael is the author and or principal photographer of five books, including Digital Landscape Photography in the Footsteps of Ansel Adams and the Great Masters, The Photographer's Guide to Yosemite, and three books in the Yosemite Meditation series. He's also written three ebooks, including Exposure for Outdoor Photography and Landscapes in Lightroom 5, The Essential Step-by-Step Guide. Michael and I had a wonderful conversation and explored several interesting topics this week, including his early career as a photographer, uh, photographers that influenced his work, and whether or not having photographers that influence our work is beneficial or not, the pros and cons of photographing the same places over and over again, things that get in the way of creativity and how to avoid them, creating depth in your landscape photography, and a lot more. Over on Patreon this week, Michael and I talk all about his use of Lightroom as a primary editing platform and how he processes images for feeling. Well, before we get started, I'm super excited to announce a special offer. One of the things that I love about this podcast is the opportunity to collaborate with other photographers who are doing good things in the world. One such individual that I want to tell you about is Phil Monson. He organizes trash cleanups and makes amazing clothing and stickers to inspire others to do similarly great things in the outdoors. As such, I am running a special offer over on Patreon in conjunction with Phil and his amazing Entrada Outdoor Company. Until December 6th, new patrons of the podcast at the F-Stop Gods and Goddesses contribution level will receive a new Entrada Outdoor Company Leave It Better Than You Found It hat of your choice. If you're already a patron at that level or higher on December 6th, you'll also get a hat. Thanks for supporting the podcast and supporting other photographers doing great things. To support us, just head over to patreon.com slash f-stop and listen. Okay, let's get to the show. Michael Fry, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks for ha- thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I guess a couple of things. Um, I've been a huge fan of your work for for many many years, and I've had lots and lots of my friends and uh, former guests that have been singing your praises and wanting to get you on the show. So I'm really I'm really excited that we we're finally ma- able to make this happen. Well, that's really nice of you and, and all of them, and I'm really glad to be here. Sweet. Yeah, and I really enjoyed uh, the conversation you had um, over on the Out of Chicago uh, F, what is it, F8 Photographer's Perspective podcast. Right. Um, I thought that was a really great conversation, um, and uh, yeah, awesome. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's do it. Cool. Yeah, so... Obviously, um, not everyone knows who you are, so I think it would be really neat if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you live, 
and uh, maybe kind of transition that into uh, kind of your early career as a photographer and how you got started in all this. Sure. Well, I live about an hour outside of Yosemite National Park in California, a town of Mariposa, and I've lived either right in Yosemite or nearby for the last 35 years or so. And I'm a professional landscape photographer, um, blogger, you know, I write about photography, et cetera. So, so that's sort of the, the basics, I guess. Um, and transitioning into, you know, how I got into this, I think ever since high school, um, teenage years, I was interested in doing something creative. You know, that's kind of the time in your life when people start asking you what you want to do for a living and that kind of thing. And, <laughs> right. and I always wanted to, do, I always wanted to do something creative. I, I dabbled in, you know, fiction writing for a while. Uh, I dabbled in painting a little bit and neither of those really stuck. Um, but later on I sort of got into photography and, and that stuck for some reason. I think um, part of that, maybe a big part of that was that, in those days, I also was really developing an, a keen interest in nature and outdoors. You know, I was doing a lot of hiking, yeah. um, watching wildlife and so forth. And photography was a way to both, you know, express myself creatively, artistically, and also to, you know, kind of show people the beauty and, and magic of nature that that I was experiencing out there. So, so I think that's you know, that's a big part of why photography kind of stuck with me and, and some of those other pursuits didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure that's true for a lot of, of your listeners that, you know, that we all have a, a keen interest in nature and, and that's, you know, that's part of why we do this. Right. Um, so, so I'm sure I'm not alone in, in having that kind of connection back in those days. So I've been doing this for a long time. Right. So, um, when I first really started getting serious about photography was in the, the uh, 1980s. Um, that was around the time I met my, my wife, Claudia. You know, we met in 84 and got married two, two years later. Nice. Um, I was working, living and working in Yosemite. We both were. Uh, I was working at the Iwani Hotel. And a little while after that, uh, well, we spent a summer up in the high country working uh, Tuolumne Meadows up in Yosemite's high country. And, um, both got jobs at the Ansel Adams gallery after that. Wow. And, uh, yeah, that was, that was incredible. Um, you know, it was at, at the time it was a great job with housing, which is hard to get in Yosemite. So that was a big plus. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think I really realized at the time what a great education it would be. Mm. Um, so you know, that was in 1985 and, and Ansel died in 1984. So I, I never unfortunately got to meet him, Oh man! <laughs> but I met, yeah, I just missed. Um, but I got to meet lots of the Adams family members, of course, and, um, many other people who knew Ansel, former assistants and other photographers and so forth. And, and, um, but just, just got to, first of all, Every day when I went to work, be exposed to a lot of wonderful photography, you know, both exhibits, you know, uh, not just Ansel Adams, but they had and still have rotating exhibits of other photographers in there. And, and just to meet uh, lots of other really talented photographers, 
during workshops or just people who were had exhibits or just came in other photographers I worked with even uh, at the gallery who, you know, were really good and knowledgeable. And, and, uh, and I just learned so much during those years there. So, so I worked there for about six years. Um, my wife, Claudia worked there for 25 years and uh, became the manager there. So yeah, so we were there for a long time (laughs) and, uh, and got to live. That's a nice connection to have. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Very, very good. So, you know, because of her job, basically, uh, we got to live in right in Yosemite Valley uh, for, well, I don't know what it was, uh, from uh, when we started at the gallery in 85 to about 2005 when we moved to Mariposa. Um, so, so I have a, you know, I have a long connection with Yosemite. Obviously, it's not just a favorite photography subject, but you know, my home, both in, you know, literally and in kind of spiritually, you know, it's a, it's a place I love. That's awesome. Uh, wow. So did you ever, when you were kind of connected to the, the Ansel Adams gallery, did you ever have the opportunity to talk to or hang out with, uh, uh, John Sexton at all? Oh yeah. Um, you know, I think really kind of, um, got to know John better later on. Um, you know, he and his wife, Anna, have become pretty good friends with uh, Claudia and I and um, oh, super, great. super nice people. Um, so, yeah, um, you know, some of the people you and I are going to be teaching at the Outer Yosemite Conference in February, which is great. That'll be really awesome, really fun. And um, yeah. and some of the, you know, some of the people there, uh, like John Sexton and Alan Ross and Charlie Kramer, William Neal, are are people who, you know, who I met back in those days at the gallery and, and, you know, gotten to know better even later. Uh, William, Bill Neal was really a, you know, an early mentor of mine. Uh, He was really helpful to me in my early days starting out. Anyway, um, it'll be really fun to, you know, sort of connect with them. But I, I really love the fact that, that at that conference, there are going to be these people like, you know, John and Alan who were assistants of Ansel's, um, right. Bill and, and Charlie Kramer, who uh, all have a, a long time connection with Yosemite and with Ansel Adams and, and can kind of bring that, uh, those traditions to, to the conference. So that'll be really fun. Yeah. That'll be magic. <laughs> yeah. Um, it sounds like, uh, you have quite a long list of, um, photographers that have kind of influenced your own work. And I'm curious who's kind of been influential to you um, and, and why. And then also I would, I'd be really curious to hear your thoughts on why is having somebody influence you a good thing or a bad thing? Or Mm. is it, you know, like does, is having someone influence your work uh, useful, beneficial, or what's your experience been with that? I'd be really curious to hear that. Hmm. Well, that second part is really interesting. Um, let, me <laughs> yeah, start, right. let me start off. Let me start off with uh, you know with some of those influences, and and if I forget to answer the second part, you'll have to remind me. But um, sure, no problem. When I started off, uh, I was really mainly interested actually in doing wildlife photography. So um, my early career, I was really focused on wildlife, and then later, uh, kind of transitioned into doing more landscapes. You know, I did landscapes both. You know big scenics and intimate landscapes all along, but, um, did a lot of wildlife. And then these days obviously do more, more landscapes. 
I still do a little bit of wildlife, not that much. Anyway, so a, a couple of my early influences, people who really inspired me were Franz Lanting, mm. Art Wolf, um, a photographer, Tupper Ansel Blake, who probably most people haven't heard of, but uh, he did a book called Wild California, which which I really loved. It focused on um, like endangered species and habitats in California and his style um, was that he didn't necessarily feel he needed to like fill up the frame with an animal, like he was showing the animal in the habitat. Mm. And and that was something that really sort of resonated with me in those days. And, and, and that's, you know, that's kind of what I wanted to do with wildlife was to show the animal in the habitat and to, to do something, you know, kind of, um, artistic if I could with, you know, with the habitat and the animal in it and the light and et cetera, um, more like a little bit more like a, you know, a landscape photo with an animal in it, if I could. Um, so that, so those were some people who I think influenced me early on. Um, of course, Ansel Adams, you know, um, it's funny because I, uh, I was mainly interested in color photography, you know, still am. I do some black and white, but but do mostly color. Mm-hmm. And I think early on, I kind of thought, you know, that Ansel wasn't like the person out there that I really wanted to emulate. You know, I admired his work, but it wasn't somebody I really, you know, looked to emulate specifically. But it's kind of like later on that I realized actually what a big influence he did have on me. Mm. And in fact, you know, Ansel, I think has had a huge influence on, on every landscape photographer today, whether we realize it or not, you know, he was really certainly one of the first, if not the first person to kind of combine a landscape, you know, the, the, fixed features of the land, like, you know, rocks and trees and Mm -hmm. lakes and rivers and oceans with a particular moment in time Mm -hmm. when, you know, the light and the clouds were just so. And, you know, that's really what (laughs) most of us are still trying to do, right? Right. We're trying to catch those moments when the the weather and the light and the clouds um, sort of match up with the landscape in a a really interesting way. Um, And... Um, so, so that really, that idea, that style comes from Ansel Adams and in other ways too, you know, like, like just visualizing things, um, which I think has become a more important part of my work in sort of the digital age than it was with doing, you know, slide film, transparency film back in, you know, back when I started out. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, um, Elliot Porter is another big one. Um, sort of the, oh yeah, I was hoping you were going to talk about uh, Elliot Porter. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. I mean, Elliot is, uh, he was one of the first prominent color nature photographers, landscape photographers. And he, you know, I think he might've coined the term intimate landscapes. If not, it was like his publisher or editor, cause he did a book with that name. <laughs> I know. And, um, and I was so, going to say, that doesn't sound like something a photographer would come up with. Definitely yeah, a you're right. yeah, right. It, it certainly could be. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's um, brilliant. It, yeah, it is. Um, and and anyway, you know, I, I left his work and, and uh, still do. And, um, and, you know, 
right from the start, I was doing intimate landscapes, if you want to use that term, and and still do and still love doing it. Um, you know, back in back in those days, like when I started doing photography seriously, like in the eighties and nineties, um, a lot of me and a lot of my photographer friends would look forward every year to the um, Sierra Club and Audubon engagement calendars coming out because there was so much great photography in there. And uh, so, so that was always an inspiration. And, and one of the things about those, those calendars is that um, they tended to feature, because they were like smaller desk, desk calendars, they tended to feature uh, lots of intimate landscapes and really, you know, sometimes often really beautiful stuff um, by people like uh, Carl Clifton, Pat O'Hara, Jack Dikinga, James Ranclev, um, you know, all like four by five guys. Um, yeah. So, so that, you know, those things were, were kind of an inspiration for me too. Um, uh, well, a couple others, I guess, um, Shinzo Maeda, who's a Japanese photographer. We had couple of his books in the, the Ansel Adams gallery when I was working there. Um, really inspirational stuff. Um, and, um, Freeman Patterson, um, yeah. he's written a lot of books on photography. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think he has a way of writing that, uh, that really inspires, um, creativity and, and, you know, that, that was really helpful at the time. Yeah, I I definitely want to um, have you answer the second part of the question, but I wanted to mm. kind of talk a little bit more about intimate landscapes because you have such a okay. such a knowledge of the history of of them and kind of you've, it sounds mm. like you've seen a lot of them and have seen a lot of really mm-hmm. fantastic intimate landscapes over the years. And one of the things that I've noticed, um, you know, I, I'm myself. I'm starting to get really into it. My it's just I don't know. It's, there's something about trying to find those scenes that are uniquely you, you know, like it's something only you can, like you can't reproduce them usually. So, uh, it's, it's very challenging, but also very rewarding. Uh, right. But it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about how everyone, you know, like they would be in calendars and, um, you consider Mm. it great photography, but I feel like nowadays intimate landscapes, generally speaking, I might be over, uh, generalizing, but seems like the kind of the, the mass appeal for intimate landscapes isn't necessarily there in terms of maybe social media, but also maybe even on sure. calendars and things of that nature. It's more like yeah, Grand Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. Um, but with photographers, yeah. it's like, we all love to see them like, Oh my gosh, that's amazing. And I'm curious kind of seeing the evolution of that style of photography over the years. I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to that in terms of, you know, the juxtaposition of the, how it's pop, the popularity of that style with the public Mm -hmm. versus photographers and how that's ebbed and flowed over time. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, well, first of all, um, I'm really glad to see intimate landscapes sort of coming back in style (laughs) a little bit. You know, I see, I see some people, uh, like you and Alex Noriega, you know, Sarah Marina is another person that comes to mind sort of younger generation of photographers gener- uh, embracing that and which I'm, I'm really happy to see. Um, and, um, but as I said, yeah, that, you know, they've been, 
that style, I guess, has been around for a long time, ever since at least Elliot Porter. And I mean, certainly Ansel did, did some of those as well in black and white, but, um, I think, I think, you know, what you were talking about that the big sort of dramatic landscapes are more popular. I think that's kind of always been the case. Um, you know, that, that it's, it's easier to, to get a, a big dramatic landscape photo published in a magazine or a calendar or get more likes on Facebook or Instagram or whatever than, than sort of those quieter Mm -hmm. scenes. And you're right. You know, it's a lot of times it's the photographers who really like those, (laughs) those quieter, more intimate landscapes, right? Because we appreciate kind of what goes into that. And, and when, when somebody sees something in a way that like we haven't seen before, you know, it's like, oh, I don't, you know, I've never seen anyone sort of portray the world quite that way before, right? you know, or, or, or I, or I think, you know, oh, I, I don't know if I ever would have noticed that really interesting, you know, pattern or whatever it is. So it's really, it's really cool to see that. And so you're right. I think a lot of times it's other photographers who, who mainly appreciate that style. Um, interestingly, interestingly though, like in my time working at the gallery and, and, you know, even beyond since, uh, since Claudia worked there for so many years, uh, and I've had, you know, I've had been fortunate enough to, to uh, have my work there and have exhibits there and so forth. It's not always, you would think that, that the, you know, the people coming into the gallery in Yosemite would mostly want to buy prints of, you know, scenes of the icons, you know, like Tunnel View and Half Dome and so forth, but not always. Um, The gallery has and still continues to sell, I think, a lot of kind of more intimate scenes by, you know, by me, but other people like, like Charlie Kramer and Bill Neal and, and so forth, where I think, um, oftentimes what, what people want to put on their wall is not necessarily, you know, a memory of a specific place, but a photograph that evokes a certain feeling, like a certain feeling Mm. for nature and, you know, beauty that, you know, that could that could be, in fact, sometimes is more strongly conveyed in um, a, a smaller scene, one of those more intimate landscapes. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm glad to hear you say that because um, I feel like, you know, if you go to art fairs and you, you hear other people, other photographers that do kind of the art fair circuit and mm. um, sell a lot of prints, like you typically, yeah, with a few exceptions, but you typically don't see a lot of intimate landscapes. You know, it's typically places that people have been before and it reminds, you know, it's like it evokes some memory. Um, but I, I'm glad to hear that like people are actually um, appreciating that style of photography because I feel, I personally feel like um, it's a, it's just so much more difficult to find and shoot those types of scenes effectively. At least for me, I know some people are just supernatural at it, mm. <laughs> like Sarah Marino. Like it's like she can close yeah. her eyes and point her camera, and it's done. Mm-hmm. But, uh, um, but yeah, I feel like <laughs> a lot of photographers, especially you know people that are more classic landscape, it's definitely it doesn't necessarily come naturally. Um, but the end results can be really um, striking. So, yeah. Uh, and like you said, I think it's cause of that emotional response that can be evoked through that type of imagery. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the 
Ansel Adams Gallery might be, well, I don't know about unique, but but different. It's certainly different from an art fair um, in that sense <laughs> right. that you know that it, that maybe it you know attracts a little bit of different audience of people. Um, and and part of well, this is maybe a getting getting a little off topic here, but I think part of navigating through the photography world and, and is at least for me is you know finding ways that I can make photographs that are are my own that 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 I want to make mm-hmm. you know the things that that really interest me yeah but also finding kind of a common ground where those images are also appreciated by other people mm-hmm. um so you know we we all want that appreciation um and and if nothing else to to know that our our photographs are communicating something to other people that um so so kind of figuring out where my, you know, my tastes and my, um, uh, personal expression sort of overlaps with, um, with sort of the broader world out there and, and what people respond to. Uh, so, I mean, that's kind of a, you know, it's a continually ongoing thing. You know, you never know, uh, you never know about those things. And, and I make plenty of photographs that, that I know that, um, most people aren't going to be wild about, but you know, <laughs> I like them. And so, so, you know, I'm going to make them, but, but it's also, you know, I also want to communicate again, getting back to sort of those origins, you know, I want to communicate the, the beauty I see in in the awe and wonder I see in nature to people. And, um, so if, you know, if, if people, look at one of my photos and collectively yawn at it, then, then I haven't done that, you know? So, so I'm trying to find that, that common ground. Yeah. And I think we'll definitely dive, dive deeper into that conversation later for sure, in terms of kind of creative process and capturing mood and things like that. But uh, maybe let's jump back into giving you the opportunity to kind of answer that second piece of that conversation in terms of, you know, people that influence you, do you, do you feel like, Mm. I mean, obviously there's pros and cons to that. And I'm curious, and, and obviously I feel like you, uh, you're, you're benefiting from having people that have influenced you over the years, but I, I'm kind of curious on your take of what do you think about the pros and cons of having people that influence your work? Yeah. Um, well, like I said, that's, that's a pretty interesting thing to, to contemplate. So, <laughs> so yeah, there were some people who, who influenced me, especially early on. On the other hand, I think that you can, um, really kind of fall into a bit of a, a creative trap if you let yourself be overly influenced by what other people are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you, you, somehow you have to find that ground where, where you can follow your own path. And, and I don't, you know, I don't know really how to, how to answer that exactly. I think, um, although I, you know, I mentioned a lot of influences for me back in those days, you know, people who kind of inspired me. Um, I didn't, I, I tried even back then not to think too much about what other people were doing or what people had done before me. Um, because I think that can make things difficult. Uh, in Yosemite in particular, (laughs) 
is a challenge because so many other great photographers have been there before and right. done such amazing things, right? So, you know, I think if you if you're photographing in Yosemite and you are thinking about what Ansel Adams did or something like that or and think god, you know, how can I possibly top that? Well, you you're never you're never even going to bring out your camera. You know, you're just going to put it away and, and <laughs> right. stop doing photography. Um so so to a certain extent you have to just sort of ignore that and just go out and do what you want to do and have fun with it and hopefully somewhere along the way you you know kind of find your voice and, and find some things that you have to say maybe that are a little bit different than those who have come before you um it's interesting because i bet if if you and i sat down and looked at um five or 10 Ansel Adams images and made notes mm. of what we liked about each image. It, there would be some overlap, I'm sure, but there would also be some things yeah. that you liked about the photo that I didn't and things that I liked about the photo that you didn't. And I feel like sure. kind of finding those uh, veins of things that you appreciate about individual other people's work yeah. kind of helps inform what your voice and your vision might look like. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can be inspired by people without necessarily copying them. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, copying is is part of the process of learning photography. We we all do that. We all have to do that, really, or, or we're not going to learn. But but at some point, you have to you know kind of break away from that. Both you know copying other people and even. At some point, sometimes you you get into a mode of you know copying yourself maybe, and and you have to break out of that. That's, <laughs> that's another story. But um, but I think you can be inspired by people's work and and by their vision uh, without necessarily wanting to do exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I w I want to challenge you and play devil's advocate for a second. You said mm -hmm. that at some point you have to um, break away from that. And while I totally agree with you, I know that there are people listening that probably heard that and said, no, I don't. I don't need to. Yeah. Like if I want to go copy other people's photos for the rest of my life like that, and I love doing it, um, who are you to say that that's what I shouldn't do? So kind of how would you respond right. to that? Well, and maybe, maybe actually I'll, I'll walk that back slightly because, because I don't think you, ha I don't think you have to, have to break away from that necessarily. You're right. You know, I think that people should do whatever they enjoy doing and, you know, and if that's what they enjoy doing, then, then that's great. Um, I, I personally think it's more satisfying to do things that, are more your own mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, that it's more satisfying. I know it's more satisfying for me. Um, you know, I try in my own photography, I try not to put too much of a burden on myself. Like, you know, I, if I went out every time I picked up a camera and said, I'm not going to photograph anything unless it's, completely original, like no one has ever done anything like it, remotely like it before, including me, you know, I, I probably wouldn't, wouldn't ever press the shutter, you know, that's, that's just like too, too hard to, to, to navigate that. I think you're putting a lot of pressure yeah. on yourself. Um, 
so so I just go out and do what I enjoy doing and photograph things that that appeal to me and I want to photograph and I hope that along the way um again my own voice my own vision comes out and expresses itself and you know we're all unique we're all different and and that's bound to happen if you keep doing it and and just keep trying to follow your own um i don't know your your own inner guide in a sense in in terms of what you want to photograph and how you want Mm -hmm, to photograph mm -hmm. it all right well we'll be back in just a minute to learn all about creativity with michael fry well women photographers i want to tell you about one of our patreon supporters danny lefrancois the amazing photographer behind banff photo workshops and tours in the beautiful canadian rockies Danny is hosting a Women's Winter Adventure Workshop in January that I think sounds like a lot of fun. This Women's Adventure is a five-day, five-night workshop based primarily in Banff National Park. Sounds amazing to me. To learn more about it, head to www.banffphotoworkshops.com slash women series. And I'll post a link to that in the liner notes. Well, maybe that's a good uh, segue to talk a little bit about the creative process because I know uh, mm. for me, and I've talked about this before a little bit, and like it's hard for me to uh, verbalize my creative process. Uh, you know, I kind of have some hodgepodge answers and <laughs> and you know ways <laughs> to describe it to people, but uh, you know. I'm curious, kind of, what's your take on your creative process and maybe, you know, what are some some of the pitfalls that you see in terms of um, navigating a creative process in general? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's really difficult to talk about creativity. And, you know, I really like the conversation you had with Alistair Ben not long ago about this. You know, I think he has some great ideas about about that, about how to sort of foster creativity in people. I think in some ways it's it's easier uh, to talk about obstacles to creativity, <laughs> you know, how not to be creative. That's interesting. Uh, so we can start there, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I think these, some of these will be really obvious to, to people. I think like, you know, if you're, if you're composing a picture, you're going out to shoot or composing a picture and you're thinking about, well, you know, how many likes is this picture going to get on Facebook or Instagram, right? Then that's definitely going to block your creativity. In other words, if you're thinking about kind of, you know, how people are going to react to the photo rather than just photographing what you like, what you see, that's going to be an obstacle to creativity. And the same thing happens when, you know, if you're a professional or if you're, you know, if you're an aspiring professional and if you're thinking about whether the picture is going to sell before you even press the shutter, you know, I mean, I guess to some extent, you have to do that. I mean, if you're making a living at it, that you, that has to be a consideration. It's kind of unavoidable somewhere in there to think about whether a picture is going to sell. But um, but you can't just do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to make photos for yourself that, regardless of of whether or not you think they're going to sell or not. So so you know, if you're thinking about how people are going to respond to the photo before you take it, 
you're, you're really censoring yourself in a way before you even get to a point where you can um, kind of follow your vision and follow what interests you. So, so the more you can um, get out of that habit, you, you catch yourself going, thinking about, are people going to like this photo or are people going to buy this photo? If you can, if you can you know, kind of catch yourself doing that and say, no, wait a minute, you know, I'm just not going to think about that right now. I'm just going to think about what I want to do. Um, I think that can be helpful to, to being more creative. So if I'm hearing you, if I'm hearing you correctly, kind of thinking in that way in terms of like, Oh, is, are people going to like this or is this going to sell? Sometimes I can force you down a path that may prevent you from seeing other opportunities for creativity. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Um, you know, another one is I think just spending a lot of mental energy figuring out your camera and how to use your camera and your camera settings, right? So you know, like the in in workshops, like the last workshop that that I taught. It was a workshop that's really focused on composition and creativity. But I told people right at the beginning that we were going to talk about some of the technical stuff and try to get people comfortable with all of that because the two go hand in hand. You know, you have to know how to operate the camera. And if if you're really thinking about that all the time, it's it's very hard to be creative when, you know, when you're trying to remember what dial to use or, or where that menu item is or, or whatever it is. Right. So, yeah. so I actually think it's really important to, to learn, you learn technique, you know, exposure, focus, depth of field, all that kind of stuff and, and how your camera operates to ideally to the point where it becomes almost second nature. And then you can, you can concentrate on seeing instead of fiddling with the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that. Um, I spent a lot of my early years as a photographer doing night photography, which is kind of an interesting challenge because you're, you know, if you don't know your camera very well, it's super hard to figure it out in the dark. So, um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. So for yeah. me, I was like. When- you know, that actually was a good thing for me to do early on because it forced me to figure that stuff out pretty fast. <laughs> yeah, uh, that, that's that's a great way to do it. You know, when uh, when I teach night photography workshops, one of the things that I ask participants to do before the workshop is to go practice operating their camera in the dark, you know, go like just go into a dark room, <laughs> go to that closet and, over and there, figure out, you know, <laughs> yeah, or anything, you know, and figure out how to operate the camera and completely by feel basically in complete darkness. Um, and not only horizontally, but vertically, that's a key thing because sometimes, you know, you learn it all horizontally and then you turn the camera vertical and it's like, I don't know where anything is anymore. Um, so yeah, that's, that's really, that is really helpful for night photography, especially to, to, to be able to actually operate the camera by feel without having to turn lights on. Yeah. I feel like if you can operate your camera in the dark without looking, and understand what you're doing at the same time, you're going to be pretty good when it's not dark. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. And, you know, doing things like, um, you know, if you're a landscape photographer, I think it's actually helpful to 
do say, you know, wildlife or sports or street photography, things where you really have to think quick. Um, because that can also train you to, I mean, you have to learn, learn how to operate that camera quickly. You have to learn how to compose quickly. Um, and, you know, there's this sort of myth that it, with landscape photography, that things are sitting still. Well, yeah, you know, the rocks aren't moving, but the clouds and the light can change really yeah. quickly. And sometimes you have to be able to react quickly too. Yeah. It's crazy how, how quickly a scene can change, especially, you know, especially in the, you know, golden hour, it's like, or blue hour even it's like oh that light that i wanted yeah to for sure i had an experience uh, like two weeks ago where i saw something developing as, and like literally before i could even get my tripod set up it was gone i was like oh that sucked yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah that can happen absolutely um i mean i've i've had that happen to me you know i've had those times where i've just i've just gotten it you know like like got my camera set up and taken a shot or bracketed some shots and then it's gone. But I've also had those instances where I was just, you know, a few seconds too late, which is of course really frustrating. <laughs> it totally so, is. Yeah. 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 So what other, uh, pitfalls or, yeah. um, suggestions do you have for kind of people thinking about the creative process? Yeah. Um, I think a big one in landscape photography is, expectations, managing expectations, I guess, you know, it's, it's, yeah, we, we, I know, I know you've talked about this in the past. It's oftentimes we'll go out with a certain idea in mind, like, you know, oh, I want to go to this place for sunrise or, you know, moonrise or Milky Way or whatever it is. And, and things don't, um, don't work out the way we hoped, you know, the conditions just aren't right. The weather isn't right, you know, um, or come on, that never happens in landscape photography. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, of course it happens all the time because we're totally at the mercy of the weather and and conditions. Right. Right. Um, and if you can, if, if you can't let go of those expectations, then I think you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. But if you can, if you can just say, okay, you know, I didn't get what I hoped for. I've got this instead. You know, these are the conditions I have. And then just kind of open yourself up to that and look around and see what catches your eye and see what catches your attention. Then sometimes you can find some really interesting things. Um, one of my... Yeah, man. I, oh, yeah, go ahead. Well, one of my favorite stories about that is um, my friend, Bill Neal, William Neal, uh, he has a great story about doing that at, uh, I think it's Moraine Lake in the Canadian Rockies where he, yeah. where he went to, uh, photograph, a, kind of a classic sunrise scene there. And, um, everything was socked in. And so he couldn't photograph what he was, what he was, uh, uh, hoping to photograph, but instead he found, he just, you know, he said, all right, you know, I'll just look around and see what I can find. And he found this really beautiful, I think almost kind of mystical scene of um, just some some rocks, round rocks poking up out of the water and this, this beautiful blue-green sort of turquoise-colored water and fog off in the distance, very simple, almost uh, sort of zen-like oh. photo. And, you know, awesome. so that's just an example of... of you know, what can happen if you let go of those expectations and, and allow yourself to, to see what really is there. Yeah. I feel like I wasted 
probably seven years of my photography career uh, because I wasn't open to that stuff. I would like literally, I think I've told this story a couple of times, but um, when I lived in Portland, Oregon, I really, really wanted this very specific photograph or this scene in different types of uh, different lights or whatever, but it's, it's a shot from a mountain called Tom, Dick and Harry which is like, it's like a, I don't know, five, six mile hike up to this point. And then it overlooks this really cool view of Mount Hood. And there's like, there's a lake down here. I think it's Mirror Lake down there. And uh, there's all these really cool rocks in the foreground. Um, And when I, when I moved there, I just really wanted to photograph that scene. And so I went back probably like six times and did this hike and like three or four times, you know, it was like total yeah. fog. Like you couldn't see anything, total waste of time in, in my mind. Right. Like mm. this is a waste of time, but Oh my God. Like now it's like, could right. I please yeah. have a forest right. enveloped in fog? You know, it's, um, it's just funny. Like if you're just, <laughs> I feel like if, um, if you're open to just seeing what you see, you're going to find some really cool stuff. I just, uh, I just got back, from like a 11 day photography trip here in Colorado for, you know, fall colors. And it wasn't a particularly great year for weather because yeah. it was just blue skies, like almost every day. And it was really windy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I walked, right. I found this place and just like walked through the forest. Um, and I was kind of bummed out because of the, you know, the weather and stuff, but I'm like, I'm going to give this a go. And I stumbled across this like, yeah, really skinny, I don't know, like maybe 12 inches in diameter aspen tree that had like super fresh bear claw, like going all the way up the tree. And so I just got Mm. my macro lens out and I was photographing all the like bark that was peeling from the bear claw. And it was really fun just shooting that one tree for like an hour, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. But you got to be open to that stuff if you don't have expectations, right? Absolutely. And I love fog, by the way. Um, it's one of my one of my favorite things to favorite weather conditions to photograph, especially for forest scenes. Uh, can be be just magical. Yeah. Well, I didn't mean to didn't mean to go on that diatribe, but I feel like expectation management is super important. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, so I mean, I, I could I could go on a bit here, but um, another big one I think is um, is spending a lot of time looking at all the great photos out there and telling yourself that you'll never measure up, right? And and I mm. I get this a lot from people in different ways, you know, where they they they're measuring themselves against all other photographers out there. And, and it can be discouraging because there's, there's so much great work out there, right? There's so many people doing amazing things and, and you can look at all that and go, Oh, you know, I'll never be that good. You know, why should I even bother picking up a camera? And, and I think, you know, it's, I think it's natural. It's normal for people in, in all fields, whether it's, we're talking about photography or anything else to, to compare themselves to each other. You know, that's, that's what we do. We compare ourselves to other people all the time. I think it's really, you know, really kind of, um, uh, deadly to creativity and, and inspiration. If, if, 
if you're thinking that way in photography or, you know, any field really, you know, just all I would say is try to let go of that to, you know, think about the reasons why you started doing photography in the first place and why you enjoy it. And it's not, you know, it's not a competition. It's about doing what you enjoy doing and, you know, following your own path. And if, and it it can mean, you know, getting better as a photographer, but, you know, compared to what you were a year ago or or two years ago, you don't have to compare yourself to necessarily, you know, every, everybody else out there. Um, so, so yeah, I think that that can be a big, big hindrance for a lot of people to, to be thinking a lot about that, that sort of, um, all the great photos out there and, and whether they're ever going to measure up. Yeah. I, th- I feel like that's really good advice. I actually wrote a article back in like 2012 about that, or I was like, like, you know, one of the, I was like five mistakes you can make. And like, number one was don't compare yourself to other photographers. Cause you're mm. always going to find someone who's better than you. So just don't bother. And um, yeah, that's it's, great advice. It's funny though, because I, I don't know if this resonates for other people, but growing up, I was always an athlete. So like competition was just mm. part of everything I always did. And, uh, mm. and I, that definitely bled into photography for me. And so mm-hmm. I'm constantly reminding myself not to compare myself to other people. Like, even though I gave, I wrote that article, it's still advice I have to remind myself, like, hey, don't worry about that. Like, it's, don't worry about what they're doing. Don't worry about what they're doing. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it's so, it's so easy to do, you know, it's so easy to, to make those comparisons and, and, you know, wonder if your images measure up and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, you know, just do it because you enjoy it and, and try to remember you know, why you enjoy it. Why, why are you doing this? I mean, that's a really important question to ask yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this kind of gets into, um, I think it's a really important part of the creative process is to ask yourself why you're doing this. You know, what are your motivations for, for doing photography? Um, and I know you've talked about this in the past too. And, and it's, you know, for me, I, t- I talked about one of the big reasons, um, which is my love of nature, you know, that's, I, I love nature and in all its forms and all its moods. I love photographing that, trying to convey, um, the, the beauty and the awe and wonder of nature. That's, you know, it's always been a prime motivation for me. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, I occasionally I photograph other things, but, but nature is always, you know, my main, my main focus. Um, and, you know, I think, um, if we're all honest with ourselves, you know, we, we also want our photographs to be appreciated by other people, you know, so, so that, you know, that's part of a motivation for, I think me and and probably most people. Um, but it's also what it could be lots of things for lots of different people. Um, I kind of asked this question in my last workshop and, and one of the answers I got was just about how, how photography gets you out there into the world and, and looking at things. Mm. And, and, you know, that's, that's, I think that's really key. That's, you know, some, something I really enjoy about uh, photography, you know, landscape photography in particular, Yeah. you know, what other pursuit motivates you 
to go to the world's most beautiful places at the most beautiful times. Um, I can't think of anything else besides landscape photography that, that does that, you know, so that's, um, if nothing else, that's one of the reasons why I do it. It's such a powerful question to ask yourself because, I mean, it's obviously a very, mm-hmm. um, introspective, you know, thing to do. Why, why am I pushing the shutter again? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I feel like it can yield all kinds of really interesting responses that then can further hone in on your vision, on kind of, you know, embracing different uh, creative thought processes. Uh, I mean, I mean, if, if I don't feel like there's a wrong answer to that question either, like if your primary motivation is no. to put food on the table for your family like sure that's right. totally fine too and and knowing that is probably gonna make you better at doing that so i think it's a really interesting question to ask yeah. sure absolutely absolutely yeah and also you know what not only maybe why you do photography but what what are the things what are the subjects that really inspire you so um you know, I, I've had, I've had this happen to me a few times when I've been reviewing somebody's portfolio and they show me some landscape images and they're, you know, they're pretty good, but not great. Maybe need some work. And then they show me a couple of pictures of their kids and they're great. And, you know, it's like, it's really easy to see that they're, they really love their kids, <laughs> right. you know, and when you photograph, when you fo- photograph, well, of course, I, I hope all parents love their kids. Right. Um, but anyway, when you photograph something that you're passionate about, that you care about, that you're knowledgeable about, you're much more likely to make good photographs than, you know, if you're photographing something that you don't really care about. Um, I think that's, you know, that's pretty obvious when you think about it, but, um, but maybe, you know, people sometimes don't think about that enough. And it, and again, you know, it's perfectly fine to, to have fun with photography and photograph all kinds of different subjects. Some people, um, that's one of the things that they enjoy about it is, is the variety that you can have. You know, you could do sports photography and street photography and landscapes and, you know, wildlife and all kinds of things. And it's fun to try all those different things. Um, but in terms of, you know, really tapping into your, your creativity in terms of really finding, sort of finding your voice as a photographer and what you really want to say. I think it's also important to think about the, the subjects that really, that you really connect with. Mm -hmm. And if you're a landscape photographer, you know, you could say, well, I really love photographing landscapes, you know, asking yourself why is, is a good question. You know, what is it about landscapes that, that makes me want to photograph them, but also, you know, which landscapes I think, uh, I know for me, there are some landscapes that I connect with more than others. And I, and it's inevitable that I'm going to make better photographs, photographs that communicate some things, photographs that, you know, convey a mood or a feeling and, and aren't just, you know, showing what someplace looks like. If, if I'm photographing a place that, that I really connect with. Yeah. I mean, you spoke earlier about you having such a deep connection to Yosemite and I'm, 
I'm guessing <laughs> that you would probably say that some of your more powerful imagery comes from Yos- the Yosemite Valley because you're so familiar with it. You're so connected emotionally, spiritually, um, mentally with that place. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious. I feel I feel that way about the mountains of Colorado, for sure. I'm curious, like, what are from from your perspective? What are some of like the the pros and cons of photographing the same area over and over <laughs> and over again? Because it sounds yeah. like it's something you've done a lot of. Yeah, like you've been photographing Yosemite for 20, 30 years. So, what is that uh, like for you? Thirty plus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, there there are some pros and cons, I guess. Um, first of all, let me say that Yosemite is a really diverse place. You know, there's Yosemite Valley, but there's also the high country. There are the, in the Yosemite area, there are the foothills to the west of the park, which is actually where I live. And then there's the the east side, as we call it, the Eastern Sierra uh, over by Mona Lake and so forth, which is a very different environment. And and so there's, there's actually, it's actually a big place and there are a lot of different habitats to photograph, different kinds of environments to photograph. And of course, things are always changing, different seasons, different weather and so forth. So, so there's really a lot of variety to that. Um, I think it, it can be challenging to photograph the same place over and over again, you know, for me, particularly Yosemite Valley, because that's, um, that's someplace close to home and in some place I've photographed over and over and it's a pretty small area but again luckily there's a lot of variety there you know it's actually a great place to do intimate landscapes although we think of Yosemite as being this place with you know the big iconic scenes uh the valley is a, a wonderful place for for smaller scenes too yeah um just the river and trees and and cliffs and, and you know s- sometimes you can photograph just a, a portion of the cliffs, things like that. Um, so, so there's a lot, a lot to do there too. And I keep finding, you know, new little spots even in the Valley, but, but throughout the park that I've never really like explored or photographed before, believe it or not, even after all these years, I think there's a real advantage to getting to know a place. Well, I think I've made my best photographs, in places that I know well, you know, even like we go back to the redwoods every year up in Northern coast of California and we do a workshop there and I've gotten to know that area and know the weather patterns, at least for that time of year. And, and it's a place I love and, you know, and I think I've made some of my best photographs there, but that's another place I know really well also. And, and it's really an advantage to, to know the locations, you know, kind of know where to go, to know the weather patterns, um, to develop a connection with a place. I think all of those are, are real big um, pluses. I think also that when you, when you go to the same place over and over again, it can't, <clears throat> excuse me, it can push you to dig a little deeper you know, so when you go to a new place, someplace you've never been before, um, it's it can be really exciting. Like like there's all this stimulation because you because you're seeing new things that you've never seen before. 
but that doesn't necessarily um, translate into great photographs. Uh, uh, sometimes when I go to a new place, you know, like, like I'm all excited because, you know, I'm photographing all these new things, but then when I really look at the photos later, sort of more objectively, uh, they're not necessarily great. You know, I was excited about them because I was photographing something different. Um, while as when you go back to the same place, sometimes, you know, like I say, it can push you to, to dig a little deeper. What you know, what haven't you done before? What haven't you tried before? How can I portray this, this place in a new way? And, and so I actually think that, that kind of, um, motivation can, um, encourage you to, to get a little more creative because, because the, you've already done all the obvious stuff, right? So you have to, to look for things that are a little less obvious. Yeah. So, if you've been to a place over and over again, for you, is it uh, is it just a matter of wanting to find things that are different and that you haven't photographed before? Is it kind of a natural progression? Or do you find yourself um, kind of just more cur- like based in curiosity, drawn into different things that you didn't see before, or is it kind of a combination of those two things? Um, I guess I would say, say it's a combination, you know, it's, it's like, like all of the above. Um, you know, I, I maybe want to explore, you know, corners of an area that I haven't seen before. Um, but, but also just, just reacting to what's going on. Like, like, um, I think mm-hmm. for me, and, and and everybody has different approaches to photography, but uh, but for me, I'm I think of a landscape as a, a dynamic thing. It's always changing. Um, Galen Rowell uh, wrote a wonderful book many years ago called Mountain Light, and the subtitle of that is In Search of the Dynamic Landscape. And although I think Galen's photos and mine are are often a lot different. Um, I think that's something that in a way that we have in common that, that, um, I think of the landscape as, is always changing and, and, you know, it's a, it's a dynamic thing, not only just the weather changing seasons, but, you know, if you, uh, visit a place long enough, you'll see other kinds of changes. Like I know there's, there are dogwood trees along the Merced river in Yosemite Valley that I've photographed years ago that have since fallen into the river, you know, the banks have eroded. And so, you know, I'm never going to make those photos again. Um, so things are, (laughs) things are constantly changing and, and I'm, I'm thinking about what's, what's happening now, what's interesting or different that's happening now, especially again, if it's a place that I've been to a lot, you know, is it some, is there something about, you know, the weather that's unusual. Is there something about the conditions? Like it could be the water level or, or it could be, um, oh, I don't know. There could even be a fire going on. You know, fi- the smoke from a fire can actually make things, um, make for some really interesting scenes. So, you know, it's like, what, what's going on now? What's, what's happening at this place that's different or unusual. And maybe that can, um, spark an idea for a photo or at least draw me to a place or a situation maybe that I haven't, um, photographed before. Yes. It's funny. You mentioned, um, wildfire because, um, early on in my fall color photography trip here in Colorado this year, 
there was a pretty significant wildfire that was, you know, casting a lot of wildfire smoke in the valleys that I was traveling into. And my friend Kane, who I was with, uh, right. he was kind of pissed off about it because he was like, ah, oh, it's going to ruin all these shots I have in mind. And because he, you know, like casts all this cyan and the yeah. photo and I don't want to deal with that and post. And, and mm. I appreciate that. But I was also like, I actually right. kind of like wildfire smoke because it creates different colors that you don't normally see. And I don't know. I, I like it when the landscape is not what you expected or what you were planning for. Cause it makes for, I don't know, it's just more challenging or more interesting or I don't know. It just makes it different. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. So, you know, that gets back to what we we're talking about, about expectations, right. right? You know, so if you have certain expectations, which don't involve smoke, you know, you're going to be bummed about, um, you know, the smoke, but, um, again, you can, you can kind of look at it as an opportunity and, and sure there are going to be some photos that won't work with smoke, but there could be other really interesting things. You know, one of the things you get with smoke is, is, um, the like at sunrise or sunset, oh, you'll get this orange ball of the crazy. sun you know, rising or setting through the smoke. Yeah, yeah which, which can be really cool. Um, it can even look like fog sometimes. So again, you know, I love fog, and <laughs> and uh, so sometimes you can get a get a fog effect with the smoke. So um, so so yeah, you know, just you have to be. I think you as a landscape photographer, or it certainly helps to be adaptable. Right, that we can't control the conditions. Um, but we can control how we react to those and, and we can try to put ourselves in the right place at the right time to, um, to photograph and take advantage of whatever weather, whatever conditions we get. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, one of the things I really wanted to talk to you about and that you've written a lot about in the past is kind of this concept of, uh, creating depth through your photography. And hmm. I think, um, in the most classical sense, a lot of people think about creating depth, uh, using a wide angle lens, uh, you know, like the whole idea of near far and, you know, getting, right. getting kind of low to the ground or, um, you know, back in the film days, it was all about tilt shift and all that kind of fun stuff. But, right. but, uh, yeah. I understand that you kind of have a kind of a different way of approaching the idea of creating depth in your landscape photographies. And I was curious if you could kind of tell us a little bit about what, how you approach that concept. Yeah. Um, well, I wrote a blog post a number of years ago about this topic. Um, it's called something like, um, creating depth beyond the wide angle formula, I think. And what <laughs> we'll, I, we'll post it in the letter notes okay. for sure. Um, so, so one, what I mean by that is that, that there is this, this well-known sort of formula for creating depth in, I mean, photography is a two dimensional medium, right? So it, it can add right. a lot to a photograph to, to create a sense of depth. Um, and the probably the most common way of doing that is using a, a wide angle lens, often, you know, really wide, super wide lens, um, getting the camera low, getting cl really close to something in the foreground of the picture. And then that sort of exaggerates the, the near far perspective, right? A wide angle lens is going to make 
distant objects like a mountain or something looks small. And, but if you get close to something in the foreground, that makes it look big and you get this sort of exaggerated size comparison. Um, and that works, you know, I mean, that's a technique uh, that, you know, every landscape photographer probably should have in their, their repertoire, right. To be able to do that, to be able to, to do that, that wide angle near far look. But, but what I wanted to show and what I wanted to say in that blog post was, that that's not the only way to do it and that we should, you know, or at least, you know, it would uh, be helpful to, uh, as landscape photographers to think about other ways that we can create depth. Um, and there are a lot of other ways to do that. You know, one of the sort of the classic ways is perspective, right? Those converging lines of, you know, could be a road or trail, but in in a completely natural environment, it might be you know riverbanks or something like that. Um, and you don't necessarily need to you know to have a super wide lens to to show that. Um, and just objects receding in size into the distance, right? So that's a a classic technique that landscape painters have used in the past. And you know the the sort of the, the real wide angle lens look is, is really something new in visual arts, right? You know, back in the, before the invention of photography, nobody ever saw the world that way. They, they kind of <laughs> right. saw the world. Yeah. They kind of saw the world with the perspective of, um, you know, more or less a normal lens, you know, like a 50 millimeter lens, uh, that, that sort of perspective. And that's what you see in, in paintings from that era. Um, so, so these, a lot of other techniques, um, so, so, you know, perspective, just objects receding in size. So, you know, like, like a similar object closer to the, the camera position or the painter position is going to be bigger than things farther away, of course. But if you can show, you know, kind of a foreground, middle ground background with, with similar objects that get smaller as they go back, that can create a strong sense of depth. Atmosphere is a big one, you know, so, um, you know, fog is, is a great way to create depth that objects sort of recede into the fog in the distance, but even just a little bit of haze, you know, we're just talking about smoke and usually we, we're not crazy about hazy atmosphere, but that kind of atmospheric haze can actually do a lot to add a sense of depth to a photograph, you know, just things, things looking more distinct in the foreground with, um, more saturated colors, more contrast. And then as things recede into the distance, they, um, in, in, in real life and, you know, in landscape paintings from master painters, uh, and especially back in, well, still, still today, but especially those, uh, 1800s painters that I was talking about, um, where, you know, things in the distance are, you know, kind of have more pastel colors and less contrast, which suggests atmospheric haze and which suggests distance. Um, and, and color, you know, there are some interesting and, and um, subtle ways that you can use color to suggest depth and distance. There are, there are only, there's only so much you can do in processing photos in terms of color before things start to get you know, weird and look unnatural. Right. <laughs> but, but you can make some, you can make some subtle adjustments to color that might help to 
um, create a sense of depth in a photo. Um, so, you know, warm colors tend to move forward toward the viewer and cool colors tend to recede. So if, you know, if you have warm colors in the foreground and you have cool colors in the distance, that can help to suggest a sense of depth. Um, and, and if you have some of that, you could like exaggerate that slightly in processing without it making it looking without making it look unnatural or weird. Um, conversely, you can actually have the opposite, right? You can actually have cool colors in the foreground, warm mm -hmm. colors in the background. And again, just that, that sort of color difference can help to create a sense of depth. Um, so there, there are a lot of other ways of, of creating a sense of depth that, that I think it's helpful to, to think about. Um, and a lot of those things that I just talked about, a sense of perspective, the, the sort of foreground, middle ground, background, the, the uh, you know, objects receding in size and the distance, things like that are helped by having a, an elevated vantage point. So and I'm not talking about a mountaintop. In fact, usually you just want a little bit of elevation. <laughs> um, but, you know, just, just a little bit above the surrounding landscape where you can kind of see that that uh, succession of foreground, middle ground, and background. Yeah, I was going to say one of my favorite ways to convey depth is through uh, layers. So, you know, you've, like mm -hmm. especially if you've yeah. got uh, a scene that that has maybe um, varying layers or elevations of hills or mountains as it goes into the distance, mm -hmm. you know, and they tend to kind of fade in color that that I find that that's a really interesting way to convey depth in a, in a photo as well. Yeah, that's that's a great way to do it. You know, if you have if you can if you can get up uh to a vantage point where you can see those those successive layers as you're talking about um you know that's a that's almost like the classic kind of thing from um you know, the Great Smokies or, or right. uh, Blue Ridge right. Parkway, you know, the, those kind of layers of hills and, and stuff. Um, and yeah, those are, those are, that's a really effective way to create or, or suggest a sense of depth in a photo. Um, yeah. And I think uh, an interesting way to cheat that is to use like a, a longer telephoto lens because you can, you know, you can zoom in on a scene that's, you know, 20, 30 miles away that has maybe three or four layers in it. Um, but it looks super close up and it's got four layers, but um, it's got a lot of depth in it. Yeah. You know, a telephoto, that's interesting because I think it's harder in general, it's harder to create a sense of depth with a telephoto lens. You know, it's, it's, um, it's easier to do with a wide angle lens. A, a wide angle lens tends to be more sort of immersive, like putting the viewer into the frame. Um, and a telephoto, sure. I mean, I sometimes use, in fact, often use a telephoto to deliberately sort of compress space and flatten a photo. So, you know, sometimes I want to make a photo that's more, it's more <laughs> abstract where it's just about patterns and I don't really want a sense of depth and telephotos are great for that kind of thing. Um, but you can, you know, if you want, and there's certainly situations where I do want to do that, uh, 
create a sense of depth with longer lenses. Um, it's a little more challenging, but you know, I kind of find that fun, right? <laughs> to have a little bit of challenge to, to create Absolutely. a sense of depth with, <laughs> with a telephoto instead of a wide angle lens. And, and, you know, the layers like you're talking about are, are a really good way to do that. Um, you know, again, if you have some kind of converging lines or, or, or things that, um, get gradually smaller from, from, you know, foreground to middle ground or the background and so forth. Um, I was just bringing up one of your photos, um, the patience and time one from the San Juan mountains where, where it has just what you're talking about, where you have those layers of rows of peaks going off into the distance. And, and that's a a really good example of that, that kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) Plus you have, plus, plus there's a bit of a size comparison. So there's nothing super close in the foreground in that picture, but you know, you have mountains and then other mountains and other mountains that are all, you know, sort of similar in, but of course they get smaller as they get more distant. So you have these, these similar, you know, roughly similar kinds of objects that get smaller from kind of foreground to middle ground to background. And that's another, another uh, way that the the photo implies some depth. Yeah. And I was thinking um, like kind of classically is, you know, like death Valley or, or you have kind of like sand dunes that aren't, you know, they're not Mm. that much different in size, but you know, Mm -hmm. you get a telephoto out and, you know, 10 feet of elevation creates a lot of, you know, with compression, it creates a lot of uh, distance in the image itself um, I, 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 I photographed a scene, uh, in South Utah, uh, this spring where it was, there was like just lots of just dunes kind of over and over and over again, but with a telephoto lens and in the right perspective, I could get like six dunes or five dunes kind of stacked on top of each other. And they each had a different kind of right. characteristic or pattern to them. And I just found that to be super interesting for me, I, I love that, but maybe other people think it's boring, but I thought it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you've, you've got to photograph what you love and, and uh, you know, hopefully at least some people will, will see what you see too. Yeah. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. got to do that. Yeah. I think with dunes too, you know, that, that, that atmosphere comes into play, like some of the, some of the most interesting, effective dune photos that I've seen and that I've made myself um, have been when some sand is blowing. Oh, absolutely! And, and so you you actually have have it's not fog, but it's it's also something that that adds some atmosphere to the photo and adds a, a little bit of a sense of, of depth and distance because you have things fading into the distance as the sand's blowing around. Yeah, it adds. It definitely adds to that three dimensional feel, like you were talking about, and uh, I feel like that's. I feel like that's one of the most um, challenging, but also rewarding things in landscape. Mm. If you can kind of translate this three-dimensional world with a two-dimensional medium, I think that's, it's a challenge, but once you can pull it off, it's like really interesting to see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I should mention too, too, that uh, photographing sand dunes and with sand blowing around is pretty risky to your camera. So, so you got to be careful. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Don't change lenses very often. (laughs) No, no. Um, Keep, keep your camera covered. Right. (laughs) That's funny. 
Well, awesome, Michael. So kind of winding down, uh, I'm curious uh, what what suggestions you have to the listeners about who might be fun to have on the podcast. Okay. Um, great. Yeah. Um, I have, I have kind of a long list, so I'll, I'll try to pare it down here, but, um, <laughs> uh, some of the people we've mentioned already who, you know, uh, we'll start off with, uh, some of our fellow instructors at the out of Yosemite conference who I think haven't been on the podcast before and I think would be really interesting. So, um, John Sexton and Alan Ross, uh, who will both be there and they're both, uh, they're both former assistants of Ansel Adams and great photographers in their own right. Um, really interesting to talk to in terms of, you know, they have lots of stories about Ansel and many other things too. But, you know, in terms of maybe um, sharing their perspective about uh, the photography world and the landscape world and, and how things have, have changed um, over the years, uh, I think they'd be yeah. really interesting to talk to. Um, uh, William Neal, uh, Bill Neal, he's been a friend of mine for a long time. As I mentioned, he is, he was an early mentor of mine and, uh, he'll be, he'll be there as well. And, um, you know, Bill has been doing this for a long time. He's been doing photography for a long time. And, and I think he's managed to still be creative and do new things and do different things for a long, long time. So I think it would be really interesting to talk to him about how he does that, how he, you know, kind of motivates himself and how he keeps finding new ways of, of expressing himself through his photography. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, he's been, um, writing articles for, uh, outdoor photographer magazine for for a long time. Yeah, yeah, he does he yeah. does a column for them. Yeah, he does a column for them. He's yeah. been doing that for a long time. Um, Charlie Kramer. Um, Charlie is is uh, he's a wonderful photographer. Mostly does sort of more intimate landscapes. Since we've been talking about that subject, you rarely see a, a sky in any of Charlie's pictures. But um, one of the things that I think would be really interesting to talk to Charlie about is that he's um, he has this background in traditional film and darkroom photography. You know, he he used to do uh, traditional black and white silver prints in the darkroom, but also dye transfer prints and color, which is a really difficult, although it can be really beautiful process. But now he does all digital and he's a real master digital printer and, and Photoshop guy. Um, I think it might be interesting to talk to him about his, again, kind of that, that perspective and the changes and, and, you know, how I think he kind of brings some of the, you know, some of the aesthetic and the craft of, of, um, the darkroom to, you know, to the digital darkroom and, and might be interesting to talk to him about, mm-hmm, about something mm-hmm. like that. You want more? Yeah, dude, he's <laughs> coming. This is gold. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay, great. Um, so, um, maybe, uh, Bill Atkinson. So if that name rings a bell to you or to listeners out there, it might be because Bill is best known as, uh, a programmer and, and kind of a, a programming genius. He was, he worked for Apple back in the, you know, the original heyday, late seventies, early eighties. Well, throughout the eighties, he was sort of the chief 
software architect of the Lisa, which is the predecessor to the Macintosh. And he was a photographer back in those days, still is. He's, he's a nature photographer and extremely knowledgeable about digital imaging. He was uh, another mentor of mine kind of in the digital world. I got my first lesson in Photoshop and digital imaging from Bill back in the late 90s, which was a great start for me in that, you know, that arena, which I knew nothing about at the time. Um, and so, you know, I think he could be a really interesting guy to talk to about just about digital imaging and, you know, where it's come from and where it's going to. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, Freeman Patterson. Uh, I think I mentioned him earlier too. You know, he's, he's, uh, um, I think, think he's still around with us, uh, hopefully for a little while longer. And I think is a super creative photographer and instructor and, and could be interesting to talk to. Maybe a um, couple people, sort of uh, industry people, not necessarily photographers, although well, one of them is, but um, uh, Larry Minden. Um, he's the, the president, I think, of Minden Pictures, which is a stock agency. And, and um, he was the founder of uh, Allstock uh, and was bought out by Getty Pictures and now anyway um, but he's been in the stock photo industry with with kind of a focus on nature and landscape photography for a long time and he might be an interesting person to talk to about you know stock photography especially as it relates to nature photography in this day and age <laughs> um, that's changed a lot even since I've been doing it. <laughs> right. And it's, it's changing more, you know, I mean, since I started doing it in the eighties, that was stock photography was, was gold, right? The way most nature photographers made mm -hmm. their living. Right. And now it's really hard to make a living <laughs> in stock, but um, anyway, he could be an interesting person to talk to, talk to about that. Hey, Michael, I made, I made $33 on Getty last month. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You can retire now. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it reminds me, I was at a music festival yesterday, uh, not, not yesterday, last month. And uh, um, one of the musicians was talking about, you know, the, the royalties they get from like streaming services and, Oh you know, yeah, he he, he, me he mentioned said like his last check from Spotify or something it was like thirty three cents or something. So you know, um, yeah. <laughs> as as a uh, uh, Charlie Kramer said to me once, he's he's a wonderful pianist, wonderful musician. Um, he said, you know, if you think it's hard to make a living in photography, you should try music. So anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, That's same awesome. same idea. Um, that that kind of thing has become hard to make money at. Yeah. Well, man, that those are those are awesome recommendations. I super appreciate it, man. Oh, you're welcome. Awesome. Well, this has been this has been a really great conversation. I can't thank you enough for sharing your wisdom and just thought thought process with us and just spending the time with us. I super appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. It's been fun. I've, I've had a great time and I really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Awesome, man. I can't wait to uh, hang out with you in February. Yeah, that will be, that should be a lot of fun. Absolutely. All right, Michael. Well, how can, uh, how can listeners learn more about what you got going on? 
Well, the best way to find me is on my website, michaelfry.com. So there's an E at the end of my last name, F-R-Y-E. And you can find my blog there, portfolios, uh, workshops, although they fill up really quickly, so they're pretty hard to get into. Um, there's also my uh, Landscapes in Lightroom ebook and video package that you can find there. And, um, yeah, that's, that's really the best way to, um, to see my work and, and see what I'm up to. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I heard that, uh, that your newsletter is actually pretty handy for photographers. It's not really geared towards, you know, you selling your work. It's more helping other photographers. Is that, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's really you know, my main focus is education, whether through workshops or, you know, courses or, um, or through my blog and, um, and, and really the, if you sign up for my mailing list, what you get is, is my blog through, through email basically with occasionally a few other things, um, thrown in their workshop announcements and so forth. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I've been blogging for a long time. Uh, it's, uh, a, an avenue that I like, you know, I like writing and, and I try to not just write about my experiences out photographing. You know, I, I do write about that. Like I, you know, tell stories behind photos and try to explain my thought process behind photos and things, but also usually in most of the blog posts, try to, you know, throw in some kind of little lesson or, or something people can learn from in each post. Hmm. That's smart. Yeah, I wish I would have thought of doing that a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but alas, I did not. <laughs> awesome. Anything else that you wanted to tell uh, listeners about? Um, well, no, I think that's it. Um, awesome. You know, I, I hope uh, I'll, I'll see uh, some of your listeners maybe at the Out of Yosemite conference that we're both going to be at. And um I look forward to hear. Yeah, you definitely, you definitely will. I know of at least yeah. two people that have confirmed and signed up already. So, yeah, yeah great. And um, I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts and and uh, hope uh, maybe we can do it again sometime. I love it. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right, thank you, Matt. All right. Well, thanks to Michael for joining us on the podcast. I had a wonderful time sharing the microphone with you this week, and I'm really looking forward to working with you in Yosemite this February at the Out of Yosemite Conference. If you want to join us, head over to outofchicago.com Yosemite. You can use the code FSTOP250 to receive $250 off your registration. We hope to see you there. Okay, well I promised almost two years ago that when we reached the $1,000 a month mark on Patreon that I would develop a Landscape Photography Conservation Award. Yay! We finally did it! And I am developing the award and gonna about to give it out actually. Uh, we've got a, about a month left uh, to receive nominations so let's get those in. Just head over to the liner notes to check that out and nominate a photographer that you think is doing amazing things in regards to conservation. Uh, 
So far the award is over $1,500 and we have some amazing bonus prizes that have been given to us by some amazing brands, including Shimoda Designs. Shimoda Designs uh, creates photography backpacks designed for adventure and landscape photographers like us. And uh, I actually recently took one of their photo one of their backpacks on an 11 day fall color photography trip and used it on a 16 mile backpacking overnight. And I did a review of it over on my blog, which I'll have a link to in the liner notes. Let's just say I am very impressed with uh, the Shimoda Action X series. It's fantastic. Shimoda is donating to the winner of the Landscape Conservation Award a camera bag of their choice, a core unit, and a roller and accessory case worth $779. Also, we have Reed Art and Imaging, a fine art print lab located in Denver, Colorado. They do amazing work, including super high-end acrylic prints, and they're donating to the winner a $500 credit towards the purchase of an acrylic print. We also have Tamron, a camera lens manufacturer, and they're donating a 45 millimeter lens to the winner. That's a $599 value. Uh, we have Viewbug. They're a uh, popular photo sharing and contest website, and they're donating a Pro Plus membership to the winner, which is a $179 value. And lastly, we have QT Luang. He is donating a limited edition copy of his award-winning photo book, Treasured Lands. Treasured Lands is a photo book all about the 61 United States National Parks with location and photography notes for each photograph. This limited edition version is valued at $245. Well, the, the Landscape Conservation Award would not be possible without your support over on Patreon. Uh, we have an amazing group of individuals that we call our F-Stop Gods and Goddesses who contribute at the $20 a month level. And um, I know you guys probably get tired of hearing it, but I really I like to read their names off because these individuals are helping keep the podcast alive and are pushing forward um, the ideas that we talk about in the podcast. So thanks to Jason Clardy, Timothy Floyd, Suzanne Mathia, Gary Randall, Michael Rung, Frank Otto Peterson, Zachary Smith, Richard Wong, Matthias Joland, James Bakavoy, Danny LeFrancois, Ken Dono, William Nurse, Lori Berenson, Anton Everine, Charlotte Gibb, David Kingham, Jeff Peterson, Chris Rice, Eric Stensland, and Jack Curran. Thank you all so much. All right, well, let's talk about the next podcast episodes we have coming up. Got some really fun ones. Next up, we have uh, Mandy Lee. She travels uh, North America, living in a teardrop trailer, taking amazing photos along the way. We have Carl Vandenboom. He's the founder of Valeray Photography Gloves, or Valorette Photography Gloves. We have Paul Reefer. He's a landscape photographer from the United Kingdom. We had a fantastic conversation today, actually. We have Jeff Bartlett, a photographer from the Pacific Northwest. Michael Strickland, a film photographer specializing in panoramic photography. Jonathan Tilly, he's a personal brand marketing expert. And lastly, coming up in January, we have a really fun episode coming up with Suzanne Mathia, Alex Noriega, Guy Tao, Len Metcalf, David Cobb, Sean Bagshaw, and uh, it's just going to be a lot of fun. We're talking about photography education. All right. Well, thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us and listening.
We'll see you next week.